This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. This is going to be a theatrical and intense experience, listeners. It voices some of the wildness I feel about the brinkmanship our leaders are playing with the biosphere as we plod towards COP26 in Glasgow, and will anything change? It dramatises that feeling you might have of wanting to get politicians by the scruff of the neck and emptying their pockets and making them listen. You will hear a scene from Kim Stanley Robinson's novel, Ministry for the Future, and then a discussion about how frustrating it often is for climate activists to meet people in power. You might feel like shouting or insisting because you suddenly realise you have so little power unless you're part of a mass movement. And then we'll hear from Greta Thunberg. She was invited to the Climate Summit in Vienna this year. She does not shout, but it's an intense message all the same. And finally, Naomi Klein and Kim Stanley Robinson discuss his novel exploring why so many films and books are dystopian and just why our climate action must focus on the art of the possible. Tonight we're reading an extract from a novel called Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Frank is read by Mark Spencer in New Zealand and Mary Murphy is read by Meg Clancy in Country Victoria. The character Frank is suffering extreme post-traumatic stress syndrome after the great Indian heat wave that killed millions of people. He has kidnapped Mary Murphy. She is the head of the Ministry for the Future in Zurich. I think it dramatises the overwrought emotions a lot of people feel, including maybe listeners a lot of you. Greta Thunberg expressed it recently at a climate sun summit in Austria, where she felt that the people negotiating there were just acting. She said, in the face of public pressure, you have started to act, not act for the climate, but act like in role playing, playing politics, playing with words, playing with our future. So the scene opens with Mary Murphy sipping tea in her Zurich apartment and Frank, who's kidnapped her, pacing around She has asked him about the lethal heat wave in India and she listens to his deep rapid breathing. Could be he was charging himself up to do something to her. Yes, it was bad. Everyone died. I died. Then they brought me back. Are you all right now? No, I'm not all right. I meant physically. No, not physically. Not in any way. I'm sorry, So you want to talk to me uh, about that, I assume? Not that. That was just the start. That was what made me want to talk to you, maybe. But what I wanted to say isn't about that. What I want to tell you is this. It's going to happen again. Why do you think so? Because nothing's changed. 
Why do you ask me that? Why do you pretend not to know? I don't pretend. I really don't know. That's why I'm doing this. You do know. You only pretend not to know. You all pretend. You're ahead of the United Nations Ministry for the Future, and yet you pretend not to know what the future is bringing down on us. No one can know that. And I have to say, the ministry is organized under the Paris Agreement. The UN isn't directly involved. You're the Ministry for the Future. I lead it, yes. So what do you and your ministry know about the future then? We can only model scenarios. We track what has happened and graph trajectories and things we can measure. And then we postulate that the things we can measure will either stay the same or grow or shrink. Things like temperatures or birth rates and things like that. Yes. So, you know, I mean, in your exercises, is there any scenario whatsoever in which there won't be more heat waves that kill millions of people? Yes. But she was troubled. This possibility that he was bringing up to her now was exactly what kept her awake at night, night after night. Scenarios with good results in which they managed to avoid more incidents of mass deaths were, in fact, extremely rare. People would have to do things they were not doing. His presence in her kitchen was all too much like one of her insomniac whirlpools of thoughts, as if she had stumbled into one of her own nightmares while still awake, and so that she couldn't get out of it. <laughs> Come on, you, you know, you know the future, and yet you're not doing anything about it, even with your job. We're doing what we can. No, you're not. You're not doing everything you can, and what you are doing isn't going to be enough. Admit it. <sighs> We're trying. She tried to think what to say to him. The look in his eye scared her. Maybe he was thinking that if he killed her now, someone more effective might take her place. It looked like that was what he was thinking. And here they were, after all. She had been kidnapped and taken to her own apartment. And when this happened to women, they often died. For a long time, they sat there looking at each other. She got the impression he was letting her ponder her statement for a while, letting her stew in the juices of her own futility. But it isn't working. You're trying, but it isn't enough. You're failing. You and your organization are failing in your appointed task, and so millions are going to die. You're letting them down. Every day you let them down, you set them up for death. We're doing all we can with what we've got. No, you're not. His face flushed again. He stood up again. He circled in her kitchen like a trapped animal. He was breathing heavily. Here it comes, she thought, despite herself. Her heart was really racing. Finally, he stopped over her. He leaned down at her yet again. He spoke again in that low, choked voice that seemed all he could manage. This is why I'm here. You have to stop thinking that you're doing all you can, because you're not. There's more you could be doing. No, you have to stop thinking with your old bourgeois values. That time has passed. The stakes are too high for you to hide behind them anymore. They're killing the world. People, animals, everything. We're in a mass extinction event, and there are people trying to do something about it. You call them terrorists. 
It's the people you work for who are the terrorists. How can you not see that? I'm trying to avoid violence. That's my job. I thought you said your job was to avoid a mass extinction event. She swallowed hard, took a sip of tea. It was cool. She tried to think what to say. Was it wise to try to talk things over with this distraught young man who was getting angrier by the moment? Did she have any other choices than to do so? The ministry was set up after the Paris meeting of 2024. They thought it would be a good idea to create an agency tasked with representing the interests of the generations to come and the interests of those entities that can never speak for themselves, like animals and watersheds. Mm, and what if it's not enough? What do you mean, not enough? It's not enough. Your efforts aren't slowing the damage fast enough. They aren't creating fixes fast enough. You can see that because everyone can see that. Things don't change. We're still on track for a mass extinction event. We're in the extinction already. That's what I mean by not enough. So why don't you do something more? We're doing everything we can think of. If you took your job seriously, you'd be looking into how we can make change happen faster. Some things might be against the law, but in that case, the law is wrong. I think the principle was said at Nuremberg, you're wrong to obey orders that are wrong. A lot of our work these days goes to trying to point out the problems created by the currently existing legal regime and recommending corrections. But it isn't working. Look, if you were really from the future so that you knew for sure there were people walking the earth today fighting change so that they were killing your children and all of their children, you defend people. You defend your people. In defense of your home, your life, your people, you would kill an intruder. An intruder like you. Exactly. So if your organization represents the people who will be born after us, well, that's a heavy burden. It's a real responsibility. You have to think like them. You have to do what they would do if they were here. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. So that was the pivotal scene in the Ministry for the Future. Events develop really fast from there, but now I've invited Melbourne psychologist Lynn Bender to give her response to this scene. She was the manager of Melbourne's Lifeline service, so I figure she would have talked to people like Frank before. Welcome, Lynn. What was your first response? Well, he's just very distraught. I don't see him as pathological. And his argument about what he's distraught about is very valid. So I thought thought what he was saying was really powerful and came from his heart, really. It came from his deeply felt convictions. And what he's saying, in contrast, the UN person, Mary, comes across as, you know, the classic very sane in the way authority can be. Uh, this is what we can do. This is how we're doing it. Reminds me of uh, politicians speak. And it reminds me of exchanges you have with activists trying to talk to politicians or, you know, or organisations that are involved in fossil fuels. And they can come across as distraught and hysterical, 
will be seen that way, but they're not really. They're just grasping reality, aren't they? Yeah. So you don't think Frank is insane. Because this is a novel, do you think the writer is trying to voice something that a lot of people really very reasonably might be feeling? Well, it could be he or she has done a Jungian thing and split our conscience into the two, the part of us that goes, oh, my God, we've got to do something. We're not doing anything. We're doing the shopping. We're going to the supermarket, (laughs) you know, and the world's coming to an end, you know, and and right now that's very pertinent because people are dying en masse through lack of care, the world having neglected what it needs to do, what we know we need to do, and we're thinking, oh, what will I have for dinner? Oh, damn it, I can't go. I have to get a takeaway. I have to wear a mask. And so in some ways both characters are us because even activists like ourselves still find ourselves going on with our everyday life in a kind of detached way. So the most important thing at the moment is what we're trying to do, renovate the house or move house or you know we're playing the game we're playing our role in a world that we deny the disastrous things looming with climate change we deny by planning our future as though things will be the same Mary's response is calm and she does articulate I mean there are a lot of people now in what you might call climate change bureaucracy there's a huge bureaucracy we're going to see it all in Glasgow thousands of people who are you know beavering away at solutions and and work is being done but they would be talking like Mary but because it's a novel and that's why we heard what what she's really feeling this is really her worst nightmare she also is like Frank waking up in the middle of the night thinking we're not doing enough and I Mm. think that's why the book dramatizes that but if you met someone like Frank in your position as a psychologist, what would you say to Frank? Is I mean, Mary, I, I thought Mary was risking annoying him a bit, you know, but she, but she didn't. He, he, he knew she was taking him seriously, which goes through the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. But um, what would you say to Frank? Well, I mean, this was very common when we had emotional callers at Lifeline. The most important thing was to listen and to convey to the caller that, you, you were hearing them. You weren't going to argue the case against them. Now, there were some that shouted so loud there was no possibility of dialogue, so you'd sometimes have to stay, say, set a boundary. It doesn't mean you just do that minimal encourage, uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm listening, yes, it must be terrible to feel like that. But I think he was clearly, as Greta Thunberg in her speech, was conveying a sense of impotence around getting across to people, like she says, the house is on fire, Greta Thunberg. He's trying to say the world's on fire and you're just Mm -hmm. having these meetings. You're just discussing plans like you've got all day, all you've got a century, and it's more urgent than that. Maybe we've been so fortunate in our civilization thus far that We've had this halcyon period of relative stability, especially in the West, where most of us, if we act in certain ways, we achieve certain things. Most of us aren't starving, though that's not completely true, of course. They're very disadvantaged groups. But the people in power especially have come to believe 
oh, this is life, it'll just go on, it's comfortable, because our psyches are not geared to seeing future crises. We react with the immediate. So when something's in front of us, when there actually, actually is a fire, we'll run for our lives. Um, but ironically, in one of the terrible fires in Victoria, there was a family holed up in their house discussing with the grandmother. I was involved in some debriefing of people who worked with workers. She was reassuring her mother, look, I'm watching it on the net. I'm, I, it's all okay. Um, they're not saying we need to worry. We've got the air conditioning turned on. And they perished, mother and children. That was a, a terrible, it's not even fictional, but it's metaphor, a metaphor for how we are. Look, we're all right, you know, it's hot, we'll turn up the air conditioning. Yeah. And, and that's part of human folly in a way, sufficient under the day. In a way, we've delegated to these people, the United Nations. It seems like the machinery is all turning. There are lots of think tanks. Mark interviews people all the time, and so do I. You know, there's lots of people doing things. So in a way, we're hoping that it'll all work out. I think this is why the novelist has caught this crunch point. This is what it's sort of like wish fulfillment. I would love to get some of these people by the scruff of the neck and say, you're not doing enough. Do more. You know, stop talking about well, gas lead recovery, etc. The climate scientists sound like the distraught person confronting mm. Mary. Oh, I hear okay. climate scientists say things like that. Yeah, We've Joel Gerg. Yeah, Mark had one of his programs with Joel Gerg, who's from Melbourne University, yeah. or ANU now, I think, and she she just said she wakes up in the middle of the night. She knows so much, and yet why won't her students even listen? Why won't they rise to the occasion? I think that's what mm. it's like. I'd like to open it up now to Meg and Mark. Mark's in New Zealand, and I want to know if you think Kim Stanley Robinson, I know you've read a few of his books, so you kind of know his type of writing. Um, do you think he's dramatising the confrontation that many people would like to see? Ooh, yes, I think there's definitely a hefty dose of um, wish fulfilment from the climate community in this interaction. You know, the, the what's his name? And Antonio Gutierrez, the, the current UN Secretary General, who definitely you know, says all the right things and definitely becomes emotional in speeches about this, um, is maybe the exception to the rule, but we'd all definitely like to sit down Scott Morrison and make him listen to our plaintive cries of, don't you see reality the same way as a majority now of your citizens do? Why are you failing to, to lead... <laughs> <laughs> Even that's the role you have. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson in his books definitely does a great job of saying, look, here's the thing we collectively want. Now, what if we we get it? Then what happens? His, his definitely his style of writing is much more like uh, enlightened essay rather than, you know, page turner. Um, and his dialogue, as you might have heard in that, is interesting. <laughs> but yeah, he, he definitely breaks down those big, complicated ideas quite well. And, you know, this book reads like a, a collection of, of conversation articles, given a, a good gloss of, of yeah. fiction yeah. Um, just to make it more palatable. But yeah. yes, I think so. Yeah. We'd all like to see this happen. Hi. Well, what about you, Meg? You've done a very good job of ch channeling Mary Robinson there with the soft Irish accent. And I think this character, most readers would say, sort of reminds them of Mary Robinson, who was president, uh, president, president of Ireland. Right. Yeah. But what do you think of Mary Murphy's response as you were reading it? She, forgetting, remembering as you did, she's being kidnapped. She's yeah. in danger. Yeah. Uh, 
but she's the sort of woman that, uh, because she's a lawyer, well, Mary Robinson's a lawyer and everything, mm. so it's it's that uh, infuriating, measured, remorselessly <laughs> logical, which you just want to, you know, throttle <laughs> because she's right, and that's yes. the thing that makes makes one even angrier because she is right, but it's it's the way they go about it. They, they don't seem to have a an urgency about it, and it's all... As as Lynn said, it's all very controlled and measured, and um, and obviously on on one level it has to be. I mean, you can't have a whole lot of um, emotional hotheads, and you know, at at that level, can you? So it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because that's what Mary Robinson had to face herself in Ireland, because people were saying that she wasn't being radical enough, and uh, she was siding. And and she said, look, she got she felt she got much more done by being that um, sort of lawyer, by being more moderate and not um, coming across as a hothead, when in fact she was very passionate and very, but she couldn't uh, display that. And there's that little bit about violence there where Frank's hinting at terrorism and through the book there's a Mm. black ops um, wing that are doing things. Um, But Mary's, that character in the book is very thoroughly Irish and she... Mm knows about violence she said it doesn't lead to good things so that that's another reason for her like and she's troubled by these nightmares do you what did you think when you were reading if you'd been her in her position what did you imagine it's it's a very very difficult position because obviously she's she's in her own apartment she's being kidnapped she doesn't know whether this this person's going to kill her or not um she probably recognizes that he's He's got a lot of right on his side. And, and it's very difficult when you get people who are emotionally passionate and, and they really don't, they don't listen to, the, uh, to all your arguments that you set out. Um, it's, it's very tricky to try to break through that mindset, isn't it? Um, I felt very sorry for Mary, who I think probably I got the feeling Mary wasn't as detached. She just felt this was all she could do. And it's a bit like um, if there's an emergency, do you want someone running around screaming fire, fire, or do you want the farmer to come and start hosing it down? And they have to stay very calm. But you you want the sense of urgency to be grasped and then very clear, appropriate action. Is that the problem that climate change is like long COVID? You can't really visualise it. I was what I, when I used to watch Dan Andrews presses. I know that I'm a Victorian, therefore, but um, he would say how serious it was. At the same time, he made you feel he knew what he was doing and he was onto it. You got the feeling that this is really serious, and he knows it's really serious. He's not playing a political game, but he's also not going getting hysterical like the opposition leader was, screeching it from the sides. He was acting. I mean, that's what we want from our leaders. We want them to express that they accept the urgency, not deny it, and then set about to do what can be done with a level of confidence in in its efficacy. Let's now just finish by talking about, well, climate leadership. So on that analogy, what kind of climate leadership? Mark, could you set us off? What climate leadership do you want to see? Like Lynn saying, calm and collected, confident. Well, what do we? What are some models that you'd like us to show? 
see? Really, really good question. And I, I don't have a clear vision in my head for what a, a good climate leader looks like. Probably very much jump on the back of what Lynn was just saying. Someone who can embody those aspects that that Dan definitely was doing during the Victorian lockdown of every day, just re reiterating how serious this is that and and being very clear on what's being done, setting measures to measure success against, talking about the models, not not talking in absolutes and not talking in abstracts, like talking as, as sort of practically as possible while still stressing the urgency and the severity and the importance. Uh, if I can just quickly speak to the the fact that you know this happens in this book that Frank is a firsthand climate survivor and decides to take this radical action, and I'm I'm personally quite shocked that something like this hasn't happened yet in life in the mm. real world. But definitely, you know what we've just seen in the last few months of the fires through British Columbia, uh, a town like like Lytton, uh, British Columbia, being utterly destroyed. You imagine or or Cabargo, and you know pick your climate disaster du jour. I'm so shocked that a survivor of that has, you know, so far all that's happened is insults were thrown at ScoMo when he was visiting and people refused to shake his hand. I'm surprised there hasn't been this type of personal direct intervention from, from a survivor like that against a leader. And I'm not, I'm not hoping that happens. I'm just surprised that, that hasn't happened yet, but I definitely take it as a cautionary tale for leaders of like failure to acknowledge this will drive someone who is potentially unstable around the bend. The idea of Frank living through that and being parboiled and being surrounded by death and having to continue on living, not thinking that enough is being done to avoid that happening again, anyone, anyone would go crazy yeah. and take drastic action with that. Yeah, and this is the central question of the book, it seems to me, is that what will it take us? What will it take? And, and you mentioned Lytton and the fires, but they also had a marine heat wave off Vancouver. We interviewed someone last week about millions of sea creatures just washing up on Vancouver beaches and now floods mm. in northern Europe. It's all happening kind of synchronously now. And that's what I worry about the, you know, the right response. We've got to talk about it. We've got to see it, examples of it. Meg, have you got an, as you said, it's like biblical situation? Yes, well, that's what I said to you the other day. Yeah. It was There's a whole lot of things that happened in a very short space of time. Like in, in the space of a couple of weeks, there was, without being too dramatic about it, but it was almost like a biblical prophecy, end of days, Armageddon. We had, we had uh, pestilence, plague. We had rats and mice plagues in the country. We had uh, an apocalyptic, huge, big red eclipse of an enormous moon. And then the next day in Castlemaine, there was a, a size four earthquake. And so I'm thinking, well, it's um, it's almost like something that's uh, a prophecy without being too dramatic about it. But it was like feeling like end of days. And, and it is, isn't it? You know, unless we can come up with the solutions and put them into practice, you know, right now. Yeah. We can't okay. wait. We can't wait, you know, another year or it's no. and this COVID thing. It's almost like it's, a, you know, it's a... A warning. Yeah, like a dress rehearsal. But also, that um, you know, uncontrollable new diseases are part of the climate change scenario. Mm. Permafrost melting, yeah. microbes we've never experienced, and also fights for water and for resources mm. and for food. We're already seeing that. I mean, many of the wars relate to that scarcity that they can't cover up for. We can just import it from somewhere. 
when we run out of bananas, we get them from somewhere else so far. But, you know, the mo- a lot of the world's already experiencing the extremity of scarcity. Mm-hmm. So what does it take until it really gets to, to you experience it? Often you don't relate because we cling to feeling better. Oh, look, I'm all right. Everything's all right. Uh, I won't worry about the future. I'll just do what I have to do now. We all do that to a degree. Well, that is why I'd like everyone just to end to read this novel. If you like reading novels, this is a very easy way to look at the future in the comfort of your own sitting room. You can just imagine it as we go from this scene with Mary Murphy. We'll cover other aspects of it later on. But there are a lot of possibilities. And as we, a lot of us, try to show, there are many people already implementing those possibilities before we get to the point where everybody is so traumatised that that they can't think straight. That's what I worry with heat waves. I can't think straight in a heat wave. That that would be the mm. end for me. I think reading a novel or a lot more, I'd like to see a lot more literature stepping up to envision the future, not as a dystopia, but as what reasonably we might be doing. Any any last words? When someone, when you're traumatised, when you're in fight and flight mode, um, when you're in that immediate threat, you can't think straight. It's all reactive. You can't plan anything. It's all get away, lay low, freeze, fight and flight. So we do have to try and stay relatively calm at this point, but nevertheless be urgent. That's a complex thing to master. Thank you very much. So I'd like Mm -hmm. to thank the guests today, Meg, Clancy, Mark Spencer and Lynn Bender for dramatising this little bit of the novel by Kim Stanley Robinson called Ministry for the Future. Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Love comes your way What can I say You feel the hell You change your way We've heard from leaders about their goals and their aims. I'd like to now come to an activist who has sparked a worldwide change in consciousness. She was with us here live at the Austrian World Summit. Two years ago, she had a very stark message for us then saying, we've done enough traveling, we've done enough talking, it is time to act. Greta Thunberg, thank you so much for being with us once again. What's your message for us this year? Thank you for having me. Tomorrow, 150 weeks will have passed since we started the school strike for the climate. And during this time, more and more people around the world have woken up to the climate and ecological crisis, putting more and more pressure on you, the people in power. 
Eventually, the public pressure was too much, and you had the world's eyes on you. So you started to act. Not acting as in taking climate action, but acting as in role-playing. <laughs> playing politics, playing with words, and playing with our future. Pretending to take responsibility, acting as saviors as you try to convince us that things are being taken care of. Meanwhile, the gap between your rhetorics and reality keeps growing wider and wider. And since the level of awareness is so low, you almost get away with it. But let's be clear. What you are doing is not about climate action or responding to an emergency. It never was. This is communication tactics dressed as politics, disguised as politics. You, especially leaders from high-income nations, are pretending to change and listen to the young people while you continue pretty much exactly like before. Pretending to take science seriously by saying science is back, while holding climate summits without even inviting one single climate scientist as speaker. Pretending to wage war against fossil fuels while opening up brand new coal mines, oil fields and pipelines. You don't only continue business as usual as before, in many cases, you're even speeding up and scaling up the process. Pretending to have the most ambitious climate policies while granting new oil licenses, exploring future oil fields. Bragging about your so-called ambitious climate commitments, which if you look holistically are vastly insufficient, and then get caught not even trying to reach those targets. Pretending to care about nature and biodiversity while the world is cutting down a forest area the size of a football field every second. Pretending to be a climate leader while looking, locking in a future common agricultural policy that will make the Paris Agreement impossible to reach. Pretending that you will build back better after the pandemic, even though astronomical sums of money have already been locked in and not in green projects, whatever green means. The G7, as an example, is spending billions more on fossil fuels and fossil fuel infrastructure than on clean energy. This you compensate with beautiful words and promises that someone in the future will somehow undo your actions and make them net zero. And when your empty words are not enough, when the protests grow too loud, you respond by making the protests illegal. Of course, we welcome all efforts to safeguard future and present living conditions, and these distant net zero emissions targets could be a great start if they weren't full of gaps and loopholes, like leaving out emissions from imported goods, international aviation and shipping, as well as the burning of biomass, using baseline manipulation, excluding most feedback loops and tipping points, ignoring the crucial aspect of equity and historic emissions, as well as making these targets completely relying on fantasy scale, currently barely existing negative emissions technologies. But as your acts continue, more and more of us are seeing through your manuscripts and your role playing. The gap between your actions and words is becoming more impossible to ignore, while more and more extreme weather events are raging all around us. And as a result, young people all over this planet are no longer falling for your lies. 
you are distancing yourself further and further away from us and from reality. Some years ago, you could still claim that we're moving in the right direction. Today, that is no longer possible. 2021 is currently forecasted to be the year with the second highest emission rise ever. You say we need to move slowly to, peak, to bring the public along. However, how do you honestly expect to bring the people along if you don't treat this crisis like a crisis? If it is one thing the pandemic has proven once and for all, it is that the climate and ecological emergencies have never once been treated as emergencies. The climate crisis is today, at best, being treated only as a business opportunity to create new green jobs, new green businesses and technologies. As the pandemic unfolded, you did not say this will benefit the face mark manufacturing industry or this will create new jobs in healthcare and hospitals. Taking bold climate action will naturally bring many advantages and benefits. Yet, needless to say, we will not be able to solve a crisis we do not treat as a crisis and that we do not understand the magnitude of. Perhaps playing a role helps you sleep at night. Saying things just for the sake of it, because the words are in your scripts. But while you are busy working the stage, you seem to forget that the climate crisis is not something distant in the future. It is already taking so much from the most affected people in the most affected areas. This might just be a game to you, a game to win votes, popularity, points on the stock market, or your next high paid position in a company or lobbying firm the ones who focus on the packaging rather than on the actual content, and the ones with the most beautiful speeches and the most short-sighted, likable policies, wins. You can and will, of course, choose to continue to play your parts, say your lines and wear your costumes. You can and will continue to pretend. But nature and physics will not fall for it. Nature and physics are not entertained nor distracted by your theatre. The audience has grown wary. The show is over. Thank you.
was a tango called Nada by a group called La Tabu. People danced the tango in the streets of Buenos Aires when the military junta fell. It's a strange mix of dancing with danger and liberation. And it's my homage to Meg, who is a dancer, and I thought we needed a relief from all that intensity. Now let's plunge back into the themes of Ministry for the Future. Rutgers University invited Kim Stanley Robinson and a panel, including Naomi Klein, to explore some of the themes. It was held at the Institute of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences. They talk about rejecting apocalyptic futures, about the economic system becoming the lever to reverse climate breakdown, and then about geoengineering. John Powell, who heads the Othering and Belonging Institute at Berkeley, um, when he's asked whether he's an optimist, he responds that he's a possibilist. And I think that that idea of just holding on to what is possible and rejecting the idea of inevitable apocalyptic futures is something I've always really valued in Ken Stanley Robinson's work. And I think if there's anything optimistic that we can say about the, the period that we are in, it is that kind of feeling that with all the rules being broken all around us, that it creates a a feeling of possibility for better and worse. The world is feeling perhaps more flexible, like it might be possible to build something new within the bounds of the laws of chemistry and physics, which are not negotiable. A lot of the literature that we now call cli-fi Um, which reckons with the future of ecological collapse is actively dystopian, as we know. And and I think that they are authored, for the most part, with the best of intentions, with this idea that they are going to serve as wake-up calls or warnings, telling us that if we stay on the road we're on, we will end up somewhere no one wants to go, so we'd better swerve. But I've thought for some years now that the catch is that if the only portrayals of the future we ever see are some mix, uh, uh, mix and match of fascism and ecological collapse, then these uh, apocalyptic narratives start to feel less like warnings and more like weather forecasts, pictures of an inevitable future, predictions we can do almost nothing about. And it strikes me that this may be um, because apocalyptic collapse with a small group of winners is so hardwired in Judeo-Christian narratives from Noah's Ark that survives the flood to, of course, the rapture where a small group of believers are lifted up to that gated kingdom in the sky while non-believers are swallowed up in the hell they slash we apparently deserve. Because if you truly believe that the point of faith is to be among the saved when the end times come, then the many intersecting crises we are currently living through, the diseases, the fires, the floods, the extinctions, the hunger, the political mayhem, should not be seen as terrifying warning signs uh, that we are careening towards that dystopian future, but on the contrary, there are items on a preordained rapture checklist, proof positive, that the exciting end is nigh, so pray harder to make sure you are among the saved. On the other hand, for a more positive futurism to be more than that wild-eyed fantasy, there has to be a credible path to arrive at that better place, to get from here to there. And um, that's what I think is being offered to us uh, in the ministry for the future. Uh, It rejects apocalyptic futures, but of course, 
Stan, you go to great pains to show that avoiding that path, while it's possible, you know, we are going to be living with enormous loss. And I had read descriptions of the book as uh, a kind of a utopian future. So um, I, I, I made the mistake of reading the first chapter before bed. And I think we've definitely lowered the bar on utopia if we are starting there. Um, so so I, I mean, one of the things I wanted to just ask you about is whether you do see this as, as, a, as utopian sci-fi. It is such a near future that it, to, to me, it really felt just hyper real. I mean, I'm seeing the reviews from ministry, and I have to say that reviews end up being about um, plot summary and judgment, thumbs up, thumbs down, and not uh, analysis or discussion. Or, or, and so I'm so grateful for this kind of a conversation, which is really what I intend when I write these books anyway. And I would just like to say that um, science fiction has a basic split, dystopia, utopia. It aligns perfectly with our, our fears and our hopes. And everybody is a science fiction writer of their own life. When you think about your future, you have fears and you have hopes. And um, if you focus too much on your fears, you have a serious problem, um, uh, a psychological problem that can become existential. But luckily, hope is very biological. When you have social hopes that the society might be better, well, this is a fairly small um, body of literature uh, in it often seems dry. People talk about it being boring. And all I can say about that is it is the system we're in. We're stuck in it. We've got it. We've got to deal with it. In this book, as in all of my work, I've been trying to write about not a fresh start on another planet, but what can we do here and now in, in, in the historical situation that we're faced with. So the economic system we live in, global capitalism, is indeed a legal system. It's the rule of law for, uh, for the world at large, uh, and that's the one that seems to hold. So it seems to me that that's where there's some teeth, is in the economic system that we live in, and it was there that I focused this novel. The novel, I write the novel because I'm a novelist, but I also think there's something um, crazily bold about trying to tell the whole story in one package. There's something um, audacious about that that appeals to me, obviously. And I, I think that also we are searching for meaning in a world that is, um, for many of us, largely secular. So how you create meaning, and even if you're religious, by the stories that you tell. So the stories that are the most absorbing are perhaps creating the most meaning. And also, as you pointed out, they are elements of the discourse of battle. We're in a discourse of battle right now on this planet to try to convince everybody that taking care of the biosphere is the first order of business for civilization right now. So um, in that discursive battle, if we lose it, it could become a real war. And so it becomes really important to try to tell the story. And the, the thick texture of a novel where you have a fictional telepathy into other people's minds and a fictional uh, teleportation into other times and places, this is a, a, a powerful um, heuristic device, you might say, in, the, in the, the teaching world. It's a way of thinking that I think creates meaning. And, and I believe in it. The novel is indeed 
my religion as well as my political practice. And that brings me to your last and the hardest point, violent activism. This novel describes some actions that I find abhorrent and hope never happen. And yet, for some people on this planet, they will simply be resistance. Uh, resistance to authority, resistance to the destruction of the earth. If the discursive battle turns into the war for the earth, for the fate of the earth, um, it could get so ugly because there is a, a new set of weaponry that is um, that can't be protected against. And one response to that would be to create a police state, a kind of fascistic police state, is the only uh, way to stop this kind of resistance. I would hope for the rule of law instead. And when I wrote this novel, I was intensely nervous, apprehensive. You can see the novel shiver and squiggle under the pressure of trying to have it both ways. Um, I hope it's more of a conversation stimulus than it is a, a chickening out on my part. And I would say that no matter what I believe as a person, as a novelist, I'm trying to represent the culture and the, the civilization we're in and, and be a voice for others. That's what the novel does. And I'm afraid that if we don't take care of things by way of winning the discursive battle, we are in for ugliness that is more than just climactic, but is human against human. And I needed to describe that in ways that was like, I call it the needle in the eyeball, that there are sentences like a needle in the eyeball. And I don't like writing them and I don't like reading them, but it needed to be done. The problem is that the climate problem is, is international. And so I've had to um, spread the focus. And in Ministry for the Future, I wanted to try something that was closer to the present and, and dealt with problems that we are seeing happening right now. Those were the main uh, differences. And I, um, it did get me into questions of international law and practice and cooperation between the nation states. But it also allowed me to go to the planetary level and talk about um, sea level rise in a proactive way and to talk about global finance, which I think is key to the puzzle. We need to pay ourselves to do the right things rather than extract profit by doing the wrong things. It's clear that neoliberal capitalism, uh, which was an accidental kludge, it's not an improvisation, in other words, nobody ever designed it on purpose, but what we've come to it actually very bad for the biosphere and bad for um, equality amongst humans. It, it, uh, it, it inflicts damage on both people and planet in ways that are unsustainable. It has to change. But I think MMT, modern monetary theory, is important and needs to be um, fully discussed by the uh, conventional classical economists. It's a, to my mind, it's a refurbishing and a return of Keynesianism, arguing that the government is crucial in the economy and can serve to direct, as save and stimulate better patterns for the economy at large when it's under stress. For MMT, what's very different about them is that the creation of New, mon new money through quantitative easing, like we saw in 2008, like we saw with the pandemic in this spring, trillions of dollars created from nothing, but given to the banks to do their ordinary predatory lending rather than immediately spent on good works as in the New Deal of the 1930s, after which it enters the general economy. 
So MMT insists that government can um, generate a lot of new money without distressing the people's trust in money or the uh, the rate of inflation or deflation. Uh, there's even confusion about which occurs if lots of new money floods the system. But if that new money is directed first to good climate work and then enters the rest of the economy, then you no longer have the trap that saving the biosphere is not a profit-making enterprise and therefore won't happen in ordinary capitalism. And the other crucial aspect of MMT that I'm very impressed by is they insist on a job guarantee that governments become the, the employer of last resort and offer anyone who wants one a job at a good living wage, which immediately would establish a floor below which private industry could not fall without uh, being unable to attract workers. So this would be a massive intervention and um, it resembles very much the height of the New Deal's uh, Works Progress Administration or the uh, CCC Civilian Conservation Corps and other um, works projects that eventually included, of course, the armaments of World War II, which hopefully we won't do that again. But the uh, saving the biosphere is an equally urgent task that is also extremely labor intensive. There will never uh, be um, a, a lack of jobs of necessary work to be done by human beings. And so what MMT suggests very powerfully is that a job guarantee, which they capitalize, JG they call it, um, is, a, is a fundamental to monetary policy that everybody needs to be guaranteed a job. Kim Stanley Robinson was asked why he included an example of geoengineering in his novel The Ministry for the Future. Now Naomi Klein and he talk about the moral hazard of starting down this track and I think it's a discussion we need to expand on. Sure. Um, very briefly, I think that geoengineering has become a name for things that are bad that we don't want to do, so that there's nobody that seems to like the term. There are scientists studying various proposed um, uh, global methods of, say, lowering the temperature of the earth or stabilizing sea level, um, etc., or decarbonizing quickly, they're a mixed bag. Um, and my point is this, if we get into an emergency where wet bulb temperatures are striking down and killing millions, which is what my novel explores, there are going to be nation states that will simply initiate um, solar radiation management because it's cheap and it's uh, possible. Um, and and the rest of the world is going to have nothing to say to them because by and large they won't have been major car carbon burners. It's the developing world that suffers what the developed world uh, has done, and we will have no moral standing. Also, the moral hazard argument that if we could do some techno silver bullet fix and save things without reducing our carbon burn, that that would uh, uh, re reduce the pressure on us to reduce carbon burning fast. I think we're past all that, that we're in an all hands on deck moment where we're getting so close to the, the bad zones that have been defined um, in climate change that um, we can go ahead and start talking about geoengineering as something we might have to do in an emergency basis. So um, I'm open to the idea, but also I want to expand things. Geoengineering is defined as some uh, humanity doing something massive to the earth to change its climate. Well, we've already done that by accident, by burning a ton of carbon and by deforestation and civilization itself has been geoengineering all along.
what the scenario that I was most worried about was that panic reaction actually coming from the north um, and, you know, say like the wheat crops are wiped out, you know, in Kansas one year and an American president sacrifices India's monsoon to save us, which would be more in keeping with actually the way the developed world, the, the wealthy world has treated the global south throughout the climate crisis, which is essentially as a sacrifice zone, even in the way in which we have set temperature targets at you know, defining dangerous warming at levels that allow you know, island nations to sink. So you know, um, that's what's always worried me about, 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 um, about these technologies, I, because I see it as mo much more likely that they would be deployed in the unjust way that, that we have been already altering the, 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 the planet. You've been listening to the Climate Action Radio Show at Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. Thanks tonight to these wonderful people, Mark Spencer, Meg Clancy, Lynn Bender, Greta Thunberg, Naomi Klein and Kim Stanley Robinson. Special thanks to La Tabu for their tango music called Nada and thank you to Michaela and Raoul for getting this show to air. Tune in next Monday and please pass the podcast on to your friends. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasurer. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter.